I love you, church. I am so thankful to the Lord that in his kind providence, he has brought me and my family here to be with you. I've missed you. I've been longing to be here with you, been praying for you, and uh, I just want to take a moment to thank you. Thank you for the many prayers that you've prayed for us. Thank you for the warm welcomes that you have extended to us. Thanks for all the, the help with our transition to our new home and all the thoughtful gifts and gracious service. I see Jesus in you through all these works of his grace in your life, and it blesses my heart. So thank you for loving us so, so well. It's my great joy to speak to you this morning about our good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd of this church. He has been the good shepherd of this church since its inception. He has been the good shepherd of this church all the way up to this very moment. And he will continue to be the good shepherd of this church in the days ahead. John has written of Jesus as the good shepherd already back in chapter 10. And by the way, if this is your first Sunday here, welcome. We are walking through the book of John in the New Testament, and we are approaching chapter 13 in John today. In chapter 13, John is going to begin directing our attention to the profound love of this good shepherd for his own. His love for the precious sheep of his flock. Our text is John 13, verse 1. I could not get past verse 1. There's a lot that is said there. It's a major transition point in John's gospel. Marshall alluded to this last Sunday. This verse serves to introduce what follows in the next several chapters. And so we are going to spend our time here this morning in verse 1. Now before we get into this text, the scripture tells us that we are to give honor where honor is due. And the reason that we have arrived at chapter 13 in the Gospel of John is because Pastor Kevin and Marshall have faithfully exposited earlier portions of this Gospel to bring us up to this point. One of my prayers has been that the Lord would grant me to be diligent and faithful like these men who have served our church family so well from this pulpit by the grace of God. We should thank the Lord for these men as gifts from Christ to us here at Plainfield Bible Church. I want to start our approach to this text today by orienting us to the significance of chapter 13, verse 1, in relation to what has come before. Marshall has pointed out that Jesus' public calls for the people of Israel to repent for their sin and to believe the gospel have come to an end by the close of chapter 12. John 12, verse 36 says, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. 
That is an ominous statement. When Jesus, who is the light, goes away and hides himself from you, you are left in darkness. And then in verse 37 of John 12, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. That's the response to the conclusion of his public ministry. They were not believing in him. They did not receive him. And John had already basically said that this is what was going to happen all the way back in John chapter 1, verse 11. I want us to turn there for a moment. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, his own there refers to the nation of Israel. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 serve as a prologue to the gospel of John. And then from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through the end of chapter 12 is basically telling that story of what we see in John chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came to the people of Israel, of whom he was the rightful king, and they did not receive him. They did not believe in him. But notice what John says in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Though the nation on a broad scale had rejected him, had not received him, had not truly believed in him, there was a minority among the nation who stood apart, who did receive him. And John is going to narrow the focus on to these ones beginning in chapter 13. Now let us turn to to John 13, verse 1, and I'll read it for us. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now, the his own here, toward the end of this verse, has the more narrowed focus of being those from among the nation of Israel who did receive him. Jesus shifts here from his public ministry to the nation to a private ministry among those who were his own, who did receive him, his disciples. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text and as we consider the love of Christ held forth to us in it, may our hearts be humbled by it. Help us to understand your word this morning. May we see more of Christ. May our affection for him grow and may we be made more like him. I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin describes the next few chapters in John's Gospel as a window into Christ's heart. Here we get a glimpse into the heart of Christ for his disciples in an intimate setting, away from the crowds. These chapters have been referred to as Christ's farewell discourse to his disciples. Jesus is now focusing on preparing his disciples for what lies ahead. In chapter 13, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is about to happen within hours. His betrayal by Judas, his arrest, his suffering, and his death on the cross. And then in chapters 14 through 17, Jesus prepares his disciples for what will follow that death and his resurrection, his ascension, his departure out from this world, when he would return to his Father, having accomplished the mission for which he had been sent in his first coming. In chapters 14 through 16, he speaks directly to his disciples about their relationship to him and about their engagement with the world after he has departed. And in chapter 17, he prays to his Father for his disciples. He prays for the ones present with him there and for all who would become his disciples in the future. He prays even for us who are here today trusting in Christ. He prayed for us, ones who would become his disciples. When we arrive at the beginning of this section, when we come to chapter 13, it's been, it's less than 24 hours before Jesus is going to be crucified. And yet it will be five more chapters until Jesus arrives at the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest, unjust trials, and crucifixion. We need to pay attention to the pacing here. It's important in narrative where you have spots of fast-forward, like a genealogy, where you move through time really quickly, generation by generation. But then you slow down on one character, and then you get several chapters on them in a similar way. Here we have one of those, those slow-down moments where it's going to be a very small period of time, but many chapters taking place within that period of time. And what that indicates to us is that we need to pay attention. There's something significant here to be said. There is a major emphasis on Jesus preparing his disciples for his death and then for life after he departs when he will ascend back to his Father. Even now, we are living in this post-ascension time. Jesus has died. Jesus has ascended. And so we need to know the many key truths Jesus teaches his disciples here to prepare them to live in that precise situation. We need to know, as they needed to know, how to live as disciples of his in this world as we await his return. Now, looking at verse 1 of chapter 13, the beginning of this verse, John will establish the historical and theological setting. 
now before the feast of the Passover. John has already made similar statements about the upcoming feast of the Passover, establishing an anticipation for the events that were going to take place around this feast. John 11, verse 55, says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And then John chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There is an anticipation of this feast, of the Passover that John has been setting up. And now in John, beginning in John 13, we have reached the night before that feast of the Passover. The feast was an annual Jewish celebration which commemorated the time when Israel's God caused the angel of death to pass over the homes of the Israelites who were marked with the blood of a sacrificed lamb as he killed all the firstborn children in Egypt, a nation that had enslaved and oppressed his people, Israel. The Passover commemorated that time in Israel's history, but it also pointed forward to the ultimate Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist had announced back in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was, in a matter of hours, going to be crucified at the same time that the Passover lambs were to be slaughtered on Friday. Thus, Peter notes in 1 Peter 1.19 that we are redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. As we continue on in verse 1 of chapter 13, we get a glimpse into what is on Jesus' mind at this precise time. It says, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. We would probably say in our common vernacular, his time had come. And particularly, John is saying that the time for Jesus to be crucified had come. Jesus' hour had already been mentioned a few times in John's gospel, all the way back in chapter 2, verse 4. Mary asked Jesus to help with the situation at the feast in Cana, the wedding feast, and, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because... His hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now in chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knowing that his hour had come. Now, let's think for a moment about the implication of this progression concerning all these references about his hour not yet having come, and then now his hour has come. It reflects the plan of a divine sovereign. 
the exact timing according to the will of God. God is in control of every detail of these events that are unfolding in the Gospel of John so that Jesus is not seized and crucified until the appointed time. He is fulfilling his purposes, his good purposes, and he is fulfilling them precisely. Now, let me ask you, is God not just as much in control now of all of the timing of events that take place today? Is he not just as much in control of the various events that occur in your life right now? Is he not just as much in control of the timing of things that happen in the life of this church? He absolutely is in control and is accomplishing his plan for his glory and the good of his people. And that's good for us to know. John provides a further detail about what is on Jesus' mind. That he would depart out of this world to the Father. After Jesus' crucifixion, he was going to rise from the dead and spend 40 days teaching his followers about the kingdom of God. And then he was going to ascend out of this world and back to his heavenly Father. Now, the implication of him departing out of this world is that he had first descended from outside of this world, coming into this world. As I've titled this message, A Love from Out of This World. Well, that was all introduction to the message for this morning. But it is an introduction to a rather large portion of Scripture comprised of the next several chapters in John's Gospel. The focal point of chapter 13, verse 1, is at the end of the verse. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The main verb in this verse is the one where it says, he loved them. And technically, in the original language, those are actually the very last words of the verse. Even the to the end comes before. To the end, he loved them. Everything else in the verse precedes the words, he loved them, and are supporting and qualifying the basic thrust of the verse, which is the abounding love of Jesus Christ for his own and this basic thrust sets up for the next several chapters in John. And so in our time remaining this morning, I want us to look at Jesus' love for his own in two directions. First, Jesus had loved his own from the beginning. And second, Jesus would love his own to the end. My prayer for us has been that we would be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus in our time today and over the course of the time we spend in these next several chapters in John. A proper grasp of the love of Jesus for his own is incredibly humbling. 
those who are believers in Christ understand that we don't deserve that love at all. He loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us though we were unlovely. While we loved sin and darkness, he loved us. Considering his great love for his own should humble us, and it should deepen our love for him in response to his great love for us. Well, first, let's look at how Jesus had loved his own from the beginning. Having loved his own who were in the world. This having loved is an aorist participle. It's basically describing what Jesus had already done prior to this point in the narrative. So it's looking back from this point in John 13. Technically, Christ had loved his own before the world was even made. In John 15, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And we know from the broader testimony of Scripture that this choosing ultimately was set before the foundation of the world. So Jesus had loved his own first by choosing them. He chose these ones who were in the world before they or the world even existed. That's one way that he loved them. He chose them. The same is true for every one of you who is a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which you are choosing to trust in and to follow him now, but it's secondary and subsequent to him first choosing you. You would not choose him if he had not first chosen you and given you a new nature and an inclination toward him by the regenerating work of his spirit in you. Jesus has loved you, believer, by choosing you. Because none of us deserve to be chosen. It's the sheer mercy of God upon people who deserve only his wrath because of our sins against him. Jesus loved his own by choosing them. Jesus also had loved his own by calling them to himself. That happens in John chapter 1. Those who he had chosen, he then called to follow him, and they became his disciples. And this happened to you if you're a believer in Christ. The moment that you first believed, when Jesus called you through his gospel, and you trusted in him and followed him, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you out of the bondage of your sin into freedom from your sin. He called you out of death into life. He loved you by calling you to himself. Jesus had also loved his own by teaching them. There were many teachable moments Jesus had with his disciples. We can turn to John chapter 4 for an example of that. Verses 31, we'll go to verse... 34. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. They are concerned about whether Jesus has eaten. Food was a major concern for them. Jesus taught them about his chief priority, which was to do the will of his Father. He hungered more for this than for food. He thrived on doing the will of his Father more than on food. They needed to know this about him And they needed to gain the same conviction in their lives. On many other occasions, Jesus taught them and he kept on teaching them, kept on leading them deeper and deeper into truth. And so he has done in your life, if you're a believer in Christ. He has loved you by teaching you through his word, teaching you of who he is, And what he has done to accomplish your salvation. He has taught you his ways. He has taught you what he loves. He has taught you what he hates so that your desires can be conformed to his. And he continues to do so. He continues to strive with us and to teach us more of his majesty and more of his ways. He loves you by teaching you through his word. He also loved his own By testing them. Look at John chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. John notes that Jesus said what he said precisely because he was testing Philip. He was loving Philip by testing him. And if you are a believer in Christ, he tests you too. He loves you through this testing. It is through testing that your faith is strengthened and matured. Look with me at James chapter 1. And listen, some of you are going through difficult seasons of testing. And you need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is loving you through this testing. You need to be reminded of the good that he is doing in your life through this testing. He loves you more than anyone else can. He is sanctifying you through this testing. He is building endurance and maturity in you through this 
testing. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How can you count it joy when you face trials? It's by the inner conviction of what God is using the trial to accomplish in your life. Knowing with certainty that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God is actually strengthening your faith by testing it. What happens to muscles when we don't use them? They atrophy, right? The Lord so loves his own that he tests them and thereby strengthens their faith, builds endurance in their faith. And then the trajectory that you're on is toward completion, where you will one day lack nothing. A full maturation that will be complete at the end of this life when you pass on to glory. Jesus is using the hard situations in your life for your good because he loves you deeply. And you need to know that as you go through the difficulties you're going through. Doesn't it all dismiss the severity or the pain? But it is so good to know Jesus' love for you in the midst of all of that. So Jesus had shown love to his disciples from the beginning. We see in so many ways. Now that's looking backwards from the point that we've reached in John's narrative, chapter 13, verse 1. Now we'll see how Jesus would love his own to the end, looking forward. He loved them to the end. Most immediately, he is about to show more love to them by washing their feet in chapter 13. The washing of their feet itself is a loving act of service to them, but it also serves as a picture of their salvation and his love for them expressed in all the benefits he has bestowed on them and will bestow on them in their salvation. He also loves them by setting an example for them in that of loving service that they should imitate toward one another so that they live in line with God's design for how they are to live as his people. Now, some might think that verse 1 is introducing chapter 13 with a focus on Jesus washing his disciples' feet and the love that he displays toward his own there. And no doubt that is part of what is in view in verse 1 of chapter 13. But him loving them to the end looks not only at what's in chapter 13, but continues even beyond it. In chapters 14 through 16, we'll see that he continues to love his own by teaching them even more. These are lessons that they will need to learn to be prepared for when he returns to his Father. And he will love his own also by praying for them. In chapter 17. 
And for all of us who are believers today, Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Even now, he is ever interceding for us. Does that not comfort your heart to know that Christ is even now loving you by interceding for you? In John 18, we see an example of him loving his own by correcting them. John 18, verses 10 and 11, when the time comes for Jesus to be arrested, Peter will take matters into his own hands, as we see in these verses. John 18, verse 10 and 11, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus tells Peter, Put the sword away. And Luke fills in more detail. Jesus said, Stop. No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus basically undid what Peter had done, which shows us that Peter had done something wrong. And here Jesus comes to fix it. Jesus, out of love for his own, corrected, in this case, Peter. And if you are a believer in Christ, you know of the Lord's correction and discipline in your own life. He disciplines those that he loves. He corrects us when we go astray from what he has commanded us to believe and to do. Perhaps some of you are even under his discipline now and feeling the sting of that. Let me urge you to receive the sting of his correction as an expression of his love for you. Let me urge you to confess your sin to him to repent of whatever that sin is that is incurring his discipline upon you and be restored to your communion with him. Now, where is all of this heading? We see how Jesus would continue to love his disciples in these various ways. But where is this all going? It says he loved them to the end. What end was it to which he was loving them. The word end is translated from the Greek word telos, and it has a range of meanings such as the idea of completion, conclusion, uh, having a goal and, and reaching the end, the accomplishment of that goal, the end of the world, death. These are some of the senses in which this word can be used, and I believe the end in view here is Christ's death knowing his hour had come, that he was going out of this world to return to his Father, he first had to complete the mission for which he had been sent in his first coming. This would be the chief expression of his love for his own. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. 
we will see the chief and climactic expression of his love toward his own in that he will suffer and die to save them from their sins. He will give himself as their substitute. He will bear the wrath of God that they deserve for their sin against God. He will plunge to the deepest of depths for them. He will love them completely and fully. And so it is, as Jesus gives up his spirit on the cross, that he would declare, Tetelestai, it is finished. He loved them to the end. He was born to die so that his own who are born dead in trespasses and sins might be born again to newness of life. His mission was to die so that we might live. That is a love that is from out of this world. This world is so confused and corrupt in its ideas of what love is because it has rebelled against the God who truly is love. But a light came into the darkness of this world to show us a love that is from out of this world. Our world is dominated by a love that is focused on self. Jesus demonstrated a love that sacrifices oneself for the glory of God and the good of others. Now perhaps there's someone here today who knows that deep down it is a love of self that dominates your life. You live for you. Even what you do for others is just so that you can feel good about yourself. You cannot have this kind of love that Jesus demonstrates without being born again, being born of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have this kind of love without being rescued by Jesus from your love of self. You need to know that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came to this earth, was born of a virgin, He took on a human flesh like ours, He is truly God and truly man. And He lived a perfect life in the place of His people, a life that we could never live. And then He died the death that His people deserve for their sinful life. And then He rose from the dead, demonstrating that He had conquered sin and death for all who would place their trust in Him alone to save them. Truly, Trusting in Him requires giving up trusting in your own merits, trying to prove your own goodness. The Scripture says that no one is good. Only the perfectly righteous life of Jesus is acceptable to a perfectly holy God. That's what you need for Him to be righteous in your place, for His righteousness to be counted to you. And that comes through faith in Him. If you recognize your need to be saved from your sin, Jesus calls you to repent of your sin and to trust in Him. And so that is how I would urge you to respond. I'd love to talk with you after the service or one of the other elders here or any person you know here to be a Christian, I'm sure would just love to talk with you to help you process what the Lord may be doing in your heart. Believe 
in Christ and live. Well, church, I hope your appetite has been whetted for what is to come in the next several chapters of John. As we see in these chapters, broadly speaking, the love of Christ for his own on display all the way to the cross. Jesus had loved his own from the beginning, and Jesus would love his own to the end. Consider how bountifully he has already demonstrated his love to you up to this point in your life, most profoundly in dying for you, though you were a sinner and his enemy. Think about how it, it describes his, his thinking about this in Hebrews, with the cross set before him. It says it was a joy set before him to go to that cross for you and for me. It also says he despised the shame. He endured that. He despised the shame, and all the while, he had an abiding joy because he wanted to, to die for the glory of the Father, and he wanted to die to save you. How incredible is that? The love of our Savior, that it would be a joy for him to do that for us. Be humbled by it. Let it stir in you a love for this good shepherd who has so loved you. And trust that this great love of his will continue to abound toward you in the days ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what great love we see in the sacrifice of your Son, loving his own to the end, paying the penalty for their sins of vast, infinite penalty. What a love this is. A love that is from out of this world. May that love overwhelm us. Love at such a great cost. Love that went to the greatest of depths for us. May we be humbled by it. May our affection for Christ grow as we consider what a great love it is that he has lavished on us. May we be stirred to worship him and to live for his glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.